This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Okay, so I'm very excited to welcome here David Hartso, David Swanson, and Leah Bolger, who are three of the people who played a very large part in the founding of World Beyond War, a group that I've been involved in for a year and a half. When we discovered that this was the fifth anniversary of the founding of World Beyond War, I thought it would be a great idea to um, get some of the original initiators together and talk about how that happened and what World Beyond War is and what has been going on for the past five years since it's been founded. We have here again, David Hartso, David Swanson, and Leah Bolger. Which of the three of you feels like um, answering this question first? How, how did World Beyond War come into being? <laughs> the question is whether we all have the same answer or not. <laughs> I want to hear all three answers. <laughs> Why don't we start with you, David Swanson? Uh, well, as I recall, and, and we may get some corrections here, but I, as I recall, I wrote this book called War No More, The Case for Abolition, which was uh, not terribly groundbreaking. It was sort of a, a short summarization of my thinking of why we should abolish war entirely. Um, thinking which, by the way, has evolved and developed through the past five years, thanks to the, I mean, this is one of the things we've created in World Beyond War is an ongoing discussion uh, and feedback and uh, conversation about how and why to abolish war. Um, but then I heard from David Hartso, who's here on the call, with the idea that we ought to start an organization and that he could find some money for the initial startup and we could build something uh, to work on what I had you know, written needed to be worked on. Uh, and so because of, uh, of his idea uh, sparking that, we began bringing people together uh, to talk about uh, whether we could have such an organization. Wonderful. So, so it actually began with a book. Um, as, as a lover of books, that's wonderful news. <laughs> um, so um, David Hartzell, what's your re recollection of that? Uh, well, I, um, in September of 2013, I uh, wrote a little paper called Ending All War, an Idea Whose Time Has Come for Our Children and All Future Generations. And um, I've been working in the anti-war peace movement for the last 50 years or so. So I sent it out to many uh, key people that I knew from, from the decades of work. Uh, to say, what do you think? Um, and I gave, you know, what I saw as the why we needed this movement, uh, what were some of the hopeful signs that uh, this could really uh, make some progress, and uh, what would be some of the kind of things we'd be doing. And um, anyway, I got responses from a number of people, and one of the most positive responses was from David Swanson, saying, <laughs> I, I'm ready if, if wow. you are. And uh, I actually forget whether David's book was before or after that, but um, I had heard David speak out here in uh, California several months before that, and uh, I certainly realized that he was deeply committed to this as well. So uh, with David's uh, uh, enthousi enthusiastic response, 
I uh, went to our the, the, the board of peace workers that I am the director of and said, uh, look, this is a very important uh, issue and opportunity. Uh, would you be willing to put $20,000 into helping support David Swanson work on this for a while as, to jumpstart it? So, uh, and then after that, we began to, we got a group of people together, a lot of really very good people, uh, Kent Shifford and Paul Chappelle and uh, many others uh, to really kind of refine what this would look like. And David Swanson and I actually went back and forth uh, with different versions of this, and then we uh, sent that out to an even larger group of people. So uh, it's been exciting to see that go from uh, <laughs> a few pieces of paper to uh, and a book yeah. to uh, a worldwide movement. So was this an idea that was rolling around in your head, David, before you proposed it to David S., David Swanson? Well, uh, I... I had been involved in uh, in fighting to stop wars <laughs> for a long time. Uh, in the 60s, I took three groups of people to Russia to build peace from the bottom up and uh, risked 20 years in prison mm -hmm. uh, for uh, a peace demonstration in Moscow. Uh, I was involved in helping start the nonviolent peace force. I During the Vietnam War, I was a part of blocking uh, armed ships and trains, carrying bombs to Vietnam. And then the, in the 80s, was very involved in helping, uh, trying to stop the various US-supported wars in Central America, including uh, with Brian Wilson and Nuremberg Actions, uh, blocking trains for two and a half years that were carrying bombs that were gonna end up killing uh, people. So, uh, Partly, it just got a little tiresome <laughs> fighting one war after another. Yep. Uh, looks like this would could go on eternally, and we really needed to uh, end the uh, abolish the the institution of war, not just keep uh, trying to put out fires. And together for me uh, was seeing the increasing understanding of uh, nonviolent people power movements mm -hmm. uh, all over the world. That uh, uh, my real my feeling was uh, over ninety nine percent of the people in the world want peace, but our uh, governments are still are addicted to war, yeah. and keep fighting wars. And uh, if the people realize that we we are the massive majority of people, and we understand the power of nonviolent action, uh, we can take back power take power away from <laughs> these governments that are addicted to war. Well, there's so much more to say about that. And by the way, I do want to hear more about your background, which I've been learning about and is amazing. And by the way, it's an honor to talk to all three of you. I'd love to hear, Leah, if you can tell your side of um, what you experienced as World Beyond War was founded. And then I'd l I would like to ask each of you about what you were doing before. 
Sure. Uh, well, I, it started, I met David Swanson at something called uh, Camp Democracy in 2006 in Washington, D.C., and we had a couple of tents at, at, uh, right by the Washington Monument, and every day was a different kind of um, issue on war and peace and social uh, responsibility and, and injustice, justice, those kinds of things. So um, I had kept in touch with David uh, after that, and he, I am one of the people that he and the other David uh, contacted with this uh, proposition for an organization, uh, and I was, I, you know, anything that David Swanson is in favor of, I'm on board because I have a lot of respect for him. Mm -hmm. um, I had not known David Hartsoe at the time, uh, so I was brought into this thing as, as uh, um, just really a, a, an acquaintance or a colleague of David uh, Swanson's. But, you know, I just want to point out that it is amazing how the networking works. Uh, you know, I met David in, in D.C. At, at Camp Democracy, but I met several other people, too. And you're, the intersection of these people, it, it just is amazing how it spreads. And, you know, you find out that, oh, yeah, I know this person, and we worked on that issue. Um, and David Hartsoe, I, I just want to mention to your the listeners that David Hartsoe has a wonderful book called Waging Peace. And it is his autobiography, and it, it recounts all of his activism uh, from, from his early days. And it's really a, a wonderful chronicle. I, I call David Hartsoe the, the Forrest Gump of, of peace activism because every, anything important happened, David Hartsoe was there. <laughs> Great. Well, um, Leah, can, I, I know that each of the three of you has, has an amazing background. Can you tell us, Leah, your story before you joined World Beyond War? And then I'd like to ask the same of the other two. Sure. Um, I, I was in the military for 20 years. Uh, I joined the military because I needed a job. I had a, a BFA in, in studio art, painting and drawing, and I needed a job because there's not too many people hiring uh, artists. <laughs> so uh, I joined and I never thought I'd stay for 20 years, but I did. And um, after I got out, I, my husband and I lived on a sailboat for a couple of years, and then we traveled by RV around the country for a couple of years, and we settled down where we are now in Corvallis, Oregon. Now, I was a member of Veterans for Peace since pretty much after I got out of the military, um, and my husband also joined, but I hadn't been really active in peace movement or anti-war activities. Uh, I, I remember we had a a sticker on our car, uh, on our uh, on our RV that had a, a W with a red slash through it. That that was that was our big, uh, <laughs> our big expression of activism at the time. Um, but but so uh, since then, I, I became more and more involved in uh, in anti-war activism. And I will tell you a quickly a brief. Um, a brief story of when people are always asking me, when, when did you change? How did you change from being a, a warrior to a peacemaker, or a peace seeker or whatever? And I tell them, well, I was never a warrior. I joined the military because I needed a job, which is why most of the people join. Either they want, they need money for college or they, or they need a job. So, but after I was out, I went to see an exhibit that was put on by the American Friends Service Committee, the Quaker group. And it was called Eyes Wide Open. And I'm sure many of your uh, listeners 
um, have seen this, but uh, it was a, um, a display of army boots lined up as if they were in formation mm. or as if they were headstones at Arlington, a very, very precise rows. And the, the boots had dog tags on them. They had little notes and mementos and teddy bears and pictures and, and things on them. Uh, with with the names of of the the uh, American uh, military folks who had perished in uh, in the Iraqi War, um, and around the outside of the exhibit were were civilian shoes and small children's shoes and sandals and and they uh, represented the Iraqis that had been killed, which were about a hundred to one, I think, at the time. So, so that exhibit, I, I, it, I had a visceral reaction. I was just like punched in the gut when I saw that and I was sobbing and, and I just, I, I, at that moment, I, I became a peace activist or anti-war wow. activist, as I like to say. Um, and so I've been working ever since then, mostly with Veterans for Peace, uh, but now, uh, you know, 90, 98% of my time is with World Beyond War. Wow. Um, now, I know, of course, that Veterans for Peace and other um, veteran groups are among the most effective anti-war activists. And in fact, when, when I talk to people about what anti-war activism means, I often point out how many veterans are prominent in this movement. Um, but it, it is great to have that background of yours. What, what, was there ever a time when that was a difficult transition for you to make, Leah? No, because I was not really the typical, you know, gung-ho, you know, mm. fend the flag. Um, and, and also because I was really fairly ignorant of, of American foreign policy as, as I'm a product of uh, American public mm. education. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't, it, it really was not a, a big deal. It was just kind of like, oh, my God. After I got out, I started learning more and, and finding out and just being stunned about the truth uh, mm-hmm. and, and feeling really kind of ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't know more about my country's history. Um, so, no, it wasn't a big transition, uh, but, it, but, it, it, but that's always the question I get asked is how did I change from one to the other, and, and it's, um, it, it wasn't difficult because I was never the other uh, to begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah, great. Okay, I'd love to hear, um, David Swanson, you may have already um, told this many times, but I'd just love to hear how you got involved as an anti-war activist, which is, of course, what you, what you have devoted your life to. Um, and we, we see the results of that, but where did it begin with you? Uh, well, I never uh, switched even as much as Leah. I was always against war and I was always uh, an activist. And uh, I, I, you know, I was working on domestic issues. I was working on poverty and housing and banking and racism. And uh, when September 11th happened, I noticed that within literally within minutes, everyone on Capitol Hill, which is where I was on Capitol Hill, had concluded that the big uh, minimum wage, what they call a minimum wage increase, which is a partial restoration of some of the value that the minimum wage has been losing. And and the whole laundry list of progressive uh, legislation was simply off the table. One simply didn't do good things uh, in domestic policy when it was wartime. And I, and I asked literally dozens of people, congressional staff, allies in nonprofit uh, NGOs and so forth, why? And the, and the answer was just simply because. 
There was no, there was no good explanation. Uh, and, and then at the same time, I, I had been working on domestic issues at the local level and at the state level and getting them overturned by the state governments or by the federal governments. You know, we would get laws against, you know, predatory banking in cities and then a state government would throw them out. We would get uh, laws on living wages at the state level and the federal government would, would trash them in, in the courts and so forth. And, uh, and so it, it seemed to me that if I was going to work on something effectively, uh, I needed to work at the level of communication, of media, not just of knocking on doors. And I needed to work nationally, at least nationally. And I needed to work on foreign policy, not just domestic policy. And, and, and then if you take two minutes and stop and consider uh, that all the money is going into foreign policy, you know, it's vast majority of the money Congress is deciding on every year is going into war and war preparations. Uh, and, and that that's, you know, militarizing the police and spreading the racism and the hatred and uh, eroding civil liberties and all the rest that we've you know, been developing the case around uh, at World Beyond War. Well, then there was no question for me that I needed to work on on war and peace. And so like most peace activists, I was working either on trying to impeach somebody who was responsible for lots of wars or on trying to end particular wars. Uh, and there, too, I sort of drifted toward the same conclusion. I would like to preemptively educate people to spot the bogus lies and distortions and manipulations before the war gets, you know. I mean, I, this was the period when the United States attacked Afghanistan uh, and you had polls finding a majority in support and within a year and a half and for the subsequent 16 years running, you had a majority saying never should have started that war. And, and similarly with Iraq, uh, a couple years later, you had polls claiming a majority or close to it wanting to attack uh, Iraq. And again, within a year and a half, uh, a strong majority saying, nope, shouldn't have done that actually, uh, you know, which is not the same as should end it. God knows it should be, but it isn't. And so we've been, you know, these many, you know, what, 14 years in that case without ending it. But uh, I wanted, so that's why I wrote a book called War is a Lie to try to set people up to spot the lies as they're, as they're uttered by the elected officials, not, you know, decades later. Uh, and that's what I liked about like building an organization to make the educational effort to persuade people that there's no good war that the whole institution needs to be abolished and we need to take the resources away from it and the thinking and the energy away from it uh, and build a better non-warlike world uh, and actually focus on good policies, foreign and domestic. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Well, uh, yep. Um, before this began, did you ever envision yourself founding an organization? Was that something you had wanted to do or did it was it just something that you realized you could do when, when David Hartsoe suggested it? I don't think the idea had ever occurred to me before and, uh, in terms of this topic area or any other. I, you know, I'm somebody who likes to read books and write books. Uh, and if writing books paid as much as uh, writing emails and getting grants for organizations, I would be just writing books. Uh, but 
you know, so I, I'm not maybe the typical person whose first inclination is to create an organization. Um, but when there's an absence of any organization and somebody has an idea to fill that gap and a way to get it started, um, you know, who am I to say no? Yeah. Well, um, I will say as, as the only person here who joined World Beyond War after it was founded, I do think it's a very well-run organization and very balanced. There's, you know, no, no one person who, who um, beats everybody up and calls the shots. It's very democratic and, um, and we really get along great. Um, I, I'm very happy to be on the coordinating committee. So somehow, even though it was never your plan, David or Leah, um, to found it, I think you both do an amazing job at, at keeping it going. And I'll check your, your address for the, for the check for that. Um, <laughs> you so, know, um, oh, go ahead, Leah. I'd like to say just a couple words, or maybe David Hartzell would be better to do this, about why um, World Beyond War is different. I mean, there's a, there are thousands of anti-war slash peace organizations out there, but we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. There's, you know, so um, I would maybe ask David Hartzell to explain why this is different and, and, and uh, how, how are we different? Because I think it's a, it's a big point. Yeah, great question. Uh, well, my idea wasn't necessarily to start a new organization. Uh, I felt that we needed to put out this vision of not just uh, trying to stop this war and the next war or stopping drones or closing military bases, but to put out that vision of uh, really ending all war. And uh, actually, my hope originally was if we could get one of the larger organizations, such as Peace Action or you know, War Resistors League or uh, some other organization that would say, yes, we're going to, uh, we'll make that a prime part of our thing uh, or of our work. And, um, but uh, we didn't find anybody <laughs> that was willing to do that. So uh, somebody needed to. So uh, that was our fallback was, I mean, I had originally thought, well, maybe that this would be a coalition. Uh, uh, but, I've heard David um, David Swanson remark that, that coalitions often just are not as effective as right. they, as they seem that they might be. Um, well, a coalition uh, can develop into an organization, and it's hard to say where the line is between the two sometimes. Uh, but if a coalition has people working on a project, uh, it, can, it can work well or not, depending. But uh, as I recall, uh, part of what we wanted World Beyond War, to try to answer Leah's question further, part of what we wanted World Beyond War to be uh, was not just uh, an organization or coalition or whatever, making the case to abolish the whole institution rather than just scale back this atrocity or that atrocity, uh, but also that it would do so globally, that we wouldn't be the, the Ohio Peace and Justice Center or the United States National Peace and Justice Center, but that, that in fact, we would be a globally run, global membership, globally active campaign uh, or organization or whatever you want to call it to to move toward the abolition of war and, and so we would oppose war by everyone and war preparations by everyone uh, and 
if particular nations are in the lead in the war making and the weapons dealing, well, they will get the bulk of our attention, but we will be opposing everybody's war making and not, you know, not be accused of, you know, taking the side of some other party in some war uh, be, because we're opposing entire wars. Uh, and part of what I've found uh, is that we've been able to develop an educational program around the topic of abolition and, and make it increasingly global, increasingly our coordinating committee and our membership and our advisory board and so forth are, are global and we're moving ever in the direction of looking like the whole earth rather than looking like certain parts of the earth. Uh, but also that we've been able to move existing peace organizations, maybe not, as David said, to take on this project as their mission, but we've been able to move uh, people in drafting statements and creating language and planning particular campaigns to frame them in terms of abolition and in terms of the globe. Uh, so to get away from end the war, bring our dollars home. We want all those dollars in the United States of America uh, to rather uh, a better comprehension of how many damn dollars it is and how difficult it would be to spend them all in this one little corner of the globe to say, we want to end the wars and put these resources to good human and environmental use everywhere. Uh, and we don't want to oppose the weapons that don't work and the weapons that the Pentagon doesn't want and make sure the Pentagon gets the weapons it does want. We don't want to oppose a war so that we're better prepared for more just wars uh, and, and so forth, but we want to actually oppose the whole thing. And we've, we, it's always a work in progress, but we've had some success in moving lots of individuals. You know, we do events and we do exit polls and the people leaving our events have all been moved in the right direction, but also organizations uh, have been moved in the direction of this, this way of understanding and talking. Yeah. I, and I would just add, I think uh, in addition to getting groups that were already kind of uh, against wars, all the, all the groups that are, all the people that are hurting uh, because of wars, people that are living in war zones, people have had to flee war zones, uh, the environmental movement, which, uh, <clears throat> which I mean, we, we need hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars to make the transition to renewable energy. Well, the only way to find that money is from the military. So I, I think that, that vision of, uh, of all of us working together uh, even people that have not been, uh, you know, anti-war in the past, uh, I think has has real potential. And then, to me, this two trillion dollars a year uh, spent on uh, wars and preparations for wars by countries all over the world, half of it from the U.S., just to to put out that vision of what we could do with two trillion dollars to create a better life for every person on the planet. Yeah. Uh, and to meet all human needs, and then the 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 question that wars are not working. <laughs> yep. And, and and that there are much better ways to find security. And I'm so delighted. Uh, this this all, a global security system and alternatives to war that uh, World Beyond War has kind of putting out that vision. There is a different way to get security. I mean, people have a a right to want security, but uh, 
finding security by fighting more wars is not a very good way of doing it. It's not working. Well, that, that's for sure. You're, by the way, you're holding up where this, this will be a, an audio recording, but you're holding up the, a global security system, um, which is the book published by World Beyond War. Several editions have been published. Um, and yeah, that, that pretty much lays out our program. Um, how soon into the um, founding of World Beyond War was the first edition of this book written? Um, well, let's see. I, I think we had a conference in 2016 uh, where we had uh, an edition available and we had another conference uh, in, in the next September, 2017, and then another one this past September, 2018. Uh, so that was at least three uh, editions that we've published uh, and presumably we'll have a new one uh, in uh, in, in late 2019, uh, that would be the fourth. But uh, we must have been we must have been working on that through 2016, uh, and if not earlier, um, we had uh, we had started up in 2014. David, we've already published edition four. We've already done four. Okay, so then we must have had one in 2015. Must have been the original. Yeah. And, and in fact, I think when we had the conference at American University in 2016 that was sort of our first annual conference. Uh, it was actually the second edition of the book that was new and people could get the new second edition, right? Yeah. Yep. So um, it, it is good to note that this book, this book answers the question, how do we, how do we have a world beyond war? So this is not just an organization. Um, this is an organization with a program. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's important to know. I don't know if every organization does, does something like that. And it's fairly thin. It's not, a, it's not a real thick book. So, you know, the, sometimes the answers aren't that difficult. Um, but that, that leads to another question. What, we all know that um, fighting against war, or I shouldn't, you know, some people in our coordinating committee have objected to phrases like fighting against war, um, you know, or, or opposing war or trying to improve the world um, is not easy. And so the next question I'd like to ask all three of you, and I, I think I'd like to go David Harto, Leah, and then David. Um, what makes this difficult or, and, or what challenges do you see that World Beyond War has faced and continues to face in order to be as effective as it should be. Um, David Hartso, if you'd love to throw that to you first. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I think this addiction to, to militarism and uh, uh, military means to try to achieve security is very deeply embedded <laughs> in, yeah. in our society and really in the world. And um, I think uh, without, you know, p powerful people power movements, uh, people who are really uh, working in their own communities and states and countries and, and the world to, to challenge this uh, with the kind of commitment that we had in Nuremberg Actions where uh, for two and a half years we block trains that were carrying bombs to uh, Central America during the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to take that kind of commitment. And I was on a call with um, Edward Snowden this last week. Uh, 
and he 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 said three he had three questions that we all need to ask ourselves he said what do you love then he said what do you believe in deeply and what price are you willing to pay to get it hmm. wow. uh, and i think I, I mean a lot of most people will say yeah well of course we believe we believe in peace but what are we willing to do to get that peace and i think world beyond war has been very effective in um finding people over the world that say yeah i want peace <laughs> i don't want war anymore but somehow uh helping mobilize people or empower people to not just say, yeah, I want peace, but uh, we're going to, I'm going to organize in my community, in my state, in my country uh, to as a part of a global movement that's going to, um, to say no to this madness. Um, and I, I think having uh, an administration that <laughs> seems to want war <laughs> many places at the same time uh and of course we've had that kind of administration for for quite a long time it's not just uh trump so uh i think it's very uh it's, it's going to be people power movements of the kind that have overthrown dictatorships uh in the in the past uh that it's going to take uh I mean, obviously, we need to do the education. We need to do write the books and the articles and uh, get. But some and, and also the other. I think the other problem we have is uh, a lot of so many people have given up hope. That, yes. <laughs> yeah. That what we're up against is so horrendous <laughs> that what can one person, two, five people do? And uh, so people have to. I think we need some achievable goals that, you know, similar to the Montgomery bus boycott uh, in the civil rights movement that mm -hmm. after working for a year on an issue, people say, we won and uh, can feel empowered. Yeah, let's go on to, <laughs> to, to getting rid of the whole abolition of war. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the hopelessness um, that's out there. I have run up against that so often. Um, I find it overwhelming sometimes. How and that was the reason, one of the reasons that I wrote my book, uh, yeah. Waging Peace, is to just share some of my stories of uh, peacemaking uh, and working on helping build nonviolent people power movements in different parts of the world uh, that people can have a sense, yeah, we can make a difference. Yep. Well, I, as I'm seeing um, your video signal, you see Martin Luther King behind you and Mahatma Gandhi. Is, am I seeing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I definitely understand what you mean by people power. Um, so, Leah, I'd love to hear you answer the question, what, what, makes it, what, are, what are the some of the challenges that we regularly face at World Beyond War? Well, not just at World Beyond War, but every peace group I work with, uh, Veterans for Peace, and also I work with uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, an organization that's over 100 years old. We always rue the fact that we are all old and white and mostly male, and um, we're, 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 we just... <laughs> 
are trying so hard to engage young people and figure out where are the young people, why aren't they interested in this issue, and, and how can we get them? Uh, and everybody compares it to the Vietnam era, era when uh, there was a draft and, and people, uh, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people were dying and, and there was a tally on the television every night to show you how many people have been killed. So we don't have that kind of media um, engagement. Uh, it, I didn't even yeah, mention, there's no media yeah. mention even of, of the wars that we are involved in right now. So it's, it's out of sight. And uh, for Americans, especially, it's out of mind. Uh, you know, we just don't, we have no idea what our government's doing. And even if we did, we would say, oh, it's okay, because we are so afraid. Uh, we've been made to feel afraid by, uh, by our, our government and the media. And I think another problem is that the, the engagement that you do, the activism that we are seeing now is primarily around climate change, uh, nuclear weapons uh, to a, maybe a lesser degree, but people are seeing climate change as the issue, that if we don't solve this issue, nothing else will matter. And I think a lot of people just, they only have so much time in their day to decide which issue they're going to champion and, and, and work hard for. And, and even speaking as myself, someone who's retired from the military, and, and I have uh, my, all my days to decide what I want to spend my time on, I had to decide. I used to work with League of Women Voters. I used to work with Planned Parenthood and these, uh, you know, Move to Amend and, and healthcare. All these issues are so important but people have to make uh, you know decide what's the most important to them or what resonates with them or how they can be most effective and I feel myself with my military background this is the issue that I can be the most persuasive about or, or speak from some experience about so that's why I chose it but I think there's there are several reasons why why we have uh, difficulty uh, getting our message out and engaging people with it. Yeah. Um, now, we, we could easily spend an entire hour talking about this, but wouldn't you say that the, the climate change issue and anti-war activism go hand in hand? I certainly, I mean, that, that's sort of the way I've been approaching this, is that they are two sides of the same issue. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. They are, but the, the general public doesn't see yeah. that. And, and the reason they don't, you know, this is, we, World Beyond War has tried to, talk, to tie environmental activists with, with war and uh, issues because we see that the, the, the effect, we see the problems that, that military and war cause to the environment. But the environmental people don't really seem to see that. And we have to educate them. We have to educate the public. But one of the, one of the things that's a problem, you, you, what things that are stumbling blocks are, are problems for us, is uh, is capitalism, is money, is yeah. is uh, <laughs> the fact that, uh, that, like for instance, the the major uh, environmental groups, which you would think would be allies of ours, are funded by big corporations who don't want to be associated with anything that's anti-troop. Uh, we want to support the troops, and they, they don't see it as, uh, you know, being anti-war or being pro-peace. They, 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 you know, they don't want to hurt their image in any way. So the environmental groups are afraid, I believe, to take any kind of anti-military stand for fear they'll, they'll lose their foundation dollars. 
Yeah, I see that too. I I I have observed that um, an anti-war organization has a much tougher job than an environmental organization because we not only are fighting against the ravages of corrupt capitalism. You know, I'm not I'm not going to say here capitalism as a whole. I'll say corrupt capitalism. We can all interpret that as we wish. But not only are we fighting against that, but we're also fighting against the the forces that that are pro-war and the environmental groups do not have quite as many um, voices arrayed against them. Or I, I shouldn't even say voices, but maybe uh, profit motives arrayed against them that we do. Um, that's, uh, I've often envied the, the, what it must be like to, to be primarily an environmental activist because at least you know that a large number of people will agree with you. An anti-war activist probably can't say the same thing, um, and that—that's something I've experienced. Um, can, I'd love to ask you, David Swanson, um, and uh, and again, I'm sure there's plenty of answers to this. But what are some of the challenges or biggest challenges that you perceive? Well, there are a lot of them, uh, and I I, I I agree with everything that everybody has said, um, but I'm not sure that every environmentalist group would uh, agree with everything yeah. they've said, as they're more familiar with their own challenges. True, true, true. Yes. I don't mean to simplify. Take on the meat industry because people don't want to be told not to eat meat. They don't. There are, there are things they won't do because they're not popular. Uh, there are things that a, a movement to abolish war uh, can do that are very popular, uh, but we have to get a bigger microphone and spread the word further. And there are other things that that are not popular until we do a lot of educating. Um, but you know, we we sort of jumped from World Beyond War starting to to where we are now. And I want to just mention for one second that there's been a, a, a growth and uh, a, a, an increasing rate of growth, right? Mm -hmm. So that our membership, our recurring donors, our staff. Uh, has been growing and growing at an increasing rate. Uh, so I'm encouraged that World Beyond War may yet be able to do some of the big things we dreamed of when we started it. Um, but, you know, in terms of making the case for abolishing war, in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder than if you're going to make the case against a particular war in the United States, for example, you, you go and see what party is the president. Okay, I'm going to go to the people of the other party. You go and see what race and gender and so forth is the president. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go to the other demographics. And you've got all those people, which is what many of us sort of came into the peace movement doing. Uh, David Hartso had been in the peace movement for I don't know how many centuries at that point. <laughs> But I came into the. I'm not that old. <laughs> you know, I protested the first Gulf War and any war I had a chance to protest. But I worked in the peace movement at a time in 2000, early 2000s, when the peace movement was identified with the Democratic Party uh, and against George W. Bush and so forth. Uh, and, and and so it's easy to know who you could get to say they're against a particular war because the people they follow, like lemmings are against a particular war or pretending to be. Uh, when you go against the whole institution of war, all the wars, the good wars, the bad wars, the Republican wars, the Democratic wars, the feminist wars, well, you're up against decades of saturation propaganda. 
It's in people's cartoons. It's on their breakfast cereal boxes. It's right through their textbooks in elementary school on up. It's everywhere. Thousands and thousands of hours of propaganda. So when I go into a classroom and say, tell me why war isn't always wrong, you know, 99.9% of the time, we end up having a conversation about World War II, which is, you know, hardly relevant, didn't exist in a world remotely like the one we live in and so forth. But we have to have that educational conversation. And once you've told them three facts about World War II, you're well on your way toward, toward moving them. But it can take hours because you're up against literally thousands of hours of subtly and explicitly pushing them uh, the other way. We're up against normalization, right? We just had every super progressive hero in the United States Congress vote to prevent any dismantling of NATO because NATO is peace and justice. It's normalized, you know, a war machine, uh, the biggest war machine on earth engaged in numerous aggressive criminal destructive wars is normal and it's and it's and it's seen as international rule of law cooperation you know as if you couldn't cooperate with other countries peacefully you have to do it as a gang of thugs that's the only way you can do it uh and it's as leah mentioned it's it's been troopified you know you opposing a war is opposing the beloved troops who fight the war and and so it's very emotional for people uh, and so you have to sort of walk on eggshells and feed them facts in a certain order to try to nudge them along uh, until you can get to the point of having them agree that some hypothetical war that's identical to their beloved war uh, is ridiculous and obscene and grotesque uh, and, and then try to get them to, you know. But, but as far as hopelessness, you know, when we started this thing, we had that argument to make that that the, that the U.S. public and the British public and the public of the world had just stopped a massive bombing campaign of Syria in, in 2013. Uh, and then shortly after we got going, we had, you know, the, the, the U.S. Congress stand up to the U.S. president uh, on, uh, or stand up to the, the other half of the U.S. Congress on, on the, the Iran agreements, where the choice was this ridiculous nuclear agreement with Iran or war on Iran. Uh, and, and so we, 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 there's always examples. If, you know, the, the last Congress, uh, as we're speaking here in early 2019, the Congress that just left came within three votes of ending a war on Yemen. With a, with a ridiculous loophole in the bill with the president promising to veto it and all sorts of caveats. But if, you know, if the new Congress that we hear so many great things about is just that tedious bit much better than the last one, then they ought to pass this end the war on Yemen bill. Uh, and if that happens, then we have a precedent that we can say to people, look, we can tell Congress to do something and have it actually do it, and they can actually vote to end a war, and here's the next eight wars we want them to end. Uh, you know, so there, there are, I don't actually give a damn about hope or hopelessness, but for all the millions of people who do, there are as many reasons to, to be hopeful as there are to be hopeless. You just have to pick which ones you want to know about. Well, um, that brings me to another question. Um, And actually, I'd like to, let me put this one to David Hartso. Um, 
where do you find your, um, the inspiration that gives you the energy to keep doing this? Um, what, what, what inspires you? What, what keeps you going? Well, um, I, I think uh, it's uh, Martin Luther King, uh, the arc of the, the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, no lie can live forever. It's uh, nonviolent people power movements all over the world uh, that under uh, very heavy duty uh, repression uh, have, uh, have been able to, uh, to uh, bring down governments which have been, not been listening to the people or dictatorships. It is, um, it is as, as David Swanson was, was saying, it is we, we can, if people mobilize and organize, uh, we can make a difference. And as a person that went to Russia with me back in uh, 1962, I think, said, she said, I, I am a optimist because I cannot afford to be a pessimist. Nice. And if we, if we become a pessimist and feel there's nothing we can do, that's exactly where the power structure wants us. And uh, so the only way to, um, to keep going, <laughs> I mean, the only way if we're to have success is, is we have to look at a belief that we can make a difference. And uh, way back when I was uh, in college in Arlington, Virginia, I was a part of a, a few students uh, that uh, successfully, with, with African-American students, successfully uh, uh, integrated a lunch counter that was segregated. Oh, wow. And uh, I learned by that experience, it was the most important lesson of my life, when something terrible is happening, you don't... Uh, just uh, uh, curse the television set or the president or segregation or war. You find some other people that believe as deeply as you do about something. You get some nonviolent training and go out and organize. And uh, similar to what we did in Arlington, Virginia, we, we got the uh, lunch counters uh, uh, desegregated within about 10 days. Wow. Uh, so that. That's the lesson I hope that all of us can learn. Yep. That, uh, there's an alternative to despair <laughs> or to cursing the television set or the president. Uh, go out and organize. Yep. Little, little successes can go a long way. Um, Leah, how would you answer the question about what, what keeps you going? Well, to be brutally frank, um, I vacillate wildly between thinking we've got to do something and this is so important. If we can, if we don't do this, you know, it's it, it, the world we're, you know, we're doomed. And uh, then just uh, laying in bed and covering my head up with the covers and saying, no, I can't, you know, it's, this is too hard. I can't do it. I don't think it's going to happen, uh, you know. So, but the bottom line is, you know, if you're going to be a contributor to society, uh, rather than just a consumer, um, I, I think we owe it. That's, that's what we do is try to make things better. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I see people that are, you know, I tell people ask me um, also, how do you know you're doing any good? I mean, the, what, what are the signs? I mean, I don't see how you've changed anything. And, you know, that that's the problem, I think, with this kind of work is it's very hard to see uh, and quantitate, um, quantify, quantitate, quantify um, our successes. You can't see them. We can't say, okay, there's three wars that didn't break out because we're, we're working on them, you know, right. and, and, this, and the change comes so slowly. But you, you have to um, believe that you're making a difference. And, and every now and then something will happen, like uh, something will, somebody will come to me and say, you know what, I read this uh, article you wrote and it really inspired me and now I'm involved in my, my uh, community or, or the work that you do um, is so important and we want to support that. So you do find people like that. But, but the bottom line is, to, I, I don't think we are ever going to succeed with this idea of ending war unless we start, we as a global humanity, start thinking about um, the uh, other ways to create security. And that as long as we believe that threats of violence, violence and the threats of violence are the way to, to keep order in the world, then we're never going to get what we want. And, and, and uh, so we have to take that leap of faith that not having the military and, and closing our bases and, and withdrawing from uh, provocative postures and with aircraft carriers surrounding uh, different countries, as long as, as we, we just have to take that leap of faith and say, you know, um, this might be uh, the way to create good relations in the world is to stop uh, surrounding them with, with weapons, to stop spending, you know, as much as the rest of the world combined on weapons to, to, to hurt them. And, and start thinking about things that we could do to build uh, a, a better relationship with the, with the world who, I'm kind of going long on your question now, but, but a couple of thoughts I wanted to bring up that I've been thinking about sure. is that the polls show, international polls show that the rest of the world believe that the United States is the biggest threat to peace in, in, there is. And why is that? Well, we spend as much on weapons as the rest of the countries combined. We, we have 800 bases all over the world and military stationed uh, 150,000 troops all over the world. We, we divide up the, the globe into different uh, quadrants uh, for our military to control. Uh, and, and so you have to ask the question, do, does the American government really want peace? And if they do, why do they continue doing the things that aren't working and doubling down on them and thinking, well, if we just spend more money, if we had more nuclear weapons, whatever, uh, that, that would make us safe. So this, it's such a big problem to unwind. And, and uh, people have to make that leap of faith, change that paradigm that, that, uh, that we're safer when we have uh, force uh, military violence behind our 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 uh, our position than than goodwill and diplomacy. Yep, uh, that's the great. that's the unabridged version of yeah, my answer to your question. That's great. I, I like every <laughs> word of it. Um, by the way, I like the word unwind that you just said. I I use that word myself. In other words, we need to unwind the the problem of war. We're not going to solve it easily. Um, but um, so 
We are running out of time. I want to ask one long question and take your time answering this because it's important. I'd like to explain to people listening to this really what World Beyond War is, who are the people behind it, what are the things we do, how do we show ourselves in the world, what are the activities we do. Um, so this is, not a, this is not a short answer question. And also who would we like to give a shout out to, because, and really that should be everybody who's part of World Beyond War or who's involved with it. But I wanted to just ask the, the, each of the three of you to um, take your time answering that question, and maybe we should um, wind this up after that. So I'd like to start that with, with David, if, if that question isn't too much to begin with. To, uh, David Swanson, that is. Uh, well, I, it sounds like a question I could go on for hours and yeah. hours, <laughs> that we've already been going on for one hour, but uh, I, I think uh, that one thing we've done uh, to, to make this a little shorter than that is we've created a, a, a quite extensive website uh, with a good deal of help, in fact, uh, from the guy hosting this uh, this um, <laughs> podcast. Uh, and uh, if you go to World Beyond War and you click on About Us, uh, you will you'll find our annual report and our case statement and our description of our mission, and you'll find who's on our coordinating committee, who's on our advisory board, uh, and uh, and, and where we have chapters forming in the world and where there are activities going on. Uh, and, and it will become very clear very quickly that most of what we do is, is done by volunteers, uh, by dedicated and reliable volunteers. And sometimes people uh, help out for some years and then take a break and someone else steps into a role, but it's, uh, it's uh, it's a group, uh, a rapidly growing, uh, very large group uh, with hundreds of people, you know, very dedicated and thousands of people pretty dedicated and, and so on out. So that uh, one of the functions that we dreamed of in making this global uh, has become a reality uh, to a growing extent. And that is that we've created the advantage of being able to share resources and strategies and campaigns and actual uh, activism with allied people uh, across borders uh, in distant places. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, what's gonna keep this going uh, is not figuring out uh, how to be optimists. Uh, the world is going to go to hell. Uh, because of climate collapse, because the, this, the environment of this earth has been destroyed and the feedback loops that will creep, keep that going, despite anything we might do at this point, uh, are locked in. Uh, and, and so success uh, in, in a movement to end war and create a just and sustainable world uh, is not going to look like stones being laid for paradise for seven generations out. It's wow. going to look like one generation out is going to suffer a lot less than they might have because of things we did. Uh, and, and so we, if you, we, we, I, I think this is a good point in time to learn not to depend on optimism, to learn to understand that doing work for the betterment of the world in solidarity with our brothers and sisters is very enjoyable and fulfilling like nothing else. Uh, and, and so out of pure selfishness, you ought to be doing it. 
uh, and worrying about how successful or disastrous the outcome is going to be, uh, you know, ought to be understood as being as irrelevant as it really is and as it needs to be, because the outcomes are going to be grim. Uh, but if we can hold off nuclear war, if we can reduce the idea that the answer to refugees or climate or Facebook ads we don't like is violence, well, then we're going to, we're going to last longer than we otherwise would have. And we may actually have some decades or centuries of, of, of enjoyment uh, of this planet for quite a number of people and other living things. Uh, if, if we work at it, it's, it's well worth working at. Uh, and uh, I, I, I like uh, Leah's phrase, take a leap of faith, but I also think that part of what World Beyond War is doing is trying to quickly educate people about how much is known and documented and studied uh, to show that in fact, nonviolence works better than violence, has been proven yes. to work better than violence to such an extent that if we were talking about any other issue, the, the conclusion would be accepted by all. Uh, it's the mythology of war, it's the passion of war that keeps us from recognizing uh, that reality. So we have to do this education and, and we have to do it quickly, but it's, it's fun to do. Yep. Well, well, a uh, powerful answer, tough words, but, but true words. Um, I'd like to ask Leah, um, what's your perspective on this, on what world beyond war is? Who are we? What do we do? Um, what do people out there need to know about what world beyond war is? Well, first of all, I tell people uh, that our strength is our membership and that we have, uh, nobody's mentioned the statistics right now, but we have around 75,000 people who have signed our declaration of peace that basically says uh, that I believe war is a horrible thing and I will pledge to work nonviolently to end it. Um, that's the abbreviated version. Um, and, but the, these 75,000 people come from 175 countries. That's great. That just blows my mind. And, you know, uh, uh, a few years ago in our lifetimes, that would have been impossible to reach that number of people. And that's the only way now that we have the power to organize globally is through uh, the, the Internet. And so think about this is just like this huge um, potential of organizing power that we have, we're just barely tapping into now with thousands of people in 175 countries. So I, I kind of think of, of, of Americans uh, working on uh, anti-war issues, trying to convince our own government that, that we need to change. And, uh, it, you know, as we're, we're the inside effort, uh, you know, but I think it's going to take an international effort to push from the outside as well. So, so when you think about great changes that have happened, like, and David uses this example uh, all the time of, of slavery ending. There was a time in world history when that was perfectly legal and acceptable and understood and everybody thought it was just fine and really did not think it would end. But that was a huge change in societal norms that said, no, that isn't acceptable. It should be illegal. And it, and it became illegal. 
Uh, and, and now we think that slavery is abhorrent. And sure, it still goes on, but, but it's illegal now. And, and that's really a key point. You know, we're just making a law against war is not going to end it. But we will never end war unless it is made illegal, unless there is some consequence for starting wars. It's like if, if there were no law against robbery, then it would continue. And, and it wouldn't stop just because you say, oh, we should stop it. It's a bad thing. But when you have a law against it and somebody's caught robbing, then there are consequences. Then they have to account for that. They are punished in some way. And so the rest of the world needs to come together and, and, and uh, we need to push the making United States um, from the outside as well. We need to, we need to uh, keep pushing for participation in international, um, uh, uh, international criminal court and, and other international legal uh, bodies. And this is the way we need to resolve problems, not by, by war, the threats of war, and the rest of the world needs to uh, put pressure on us for, for starting these illegal, immoral, expensive, horrendous wars. Um, so I, I get excited about the potential, and, I, and, I, and I, that, that gives me some hope when I think about world history and how things have changed uh, over the years, but it's still, it's still such a big topic, and it still is very daunting, and, and I think world war is 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 um, is different in a way. Not only are we working to end wars, um, in the institution of war, and not only are we international, we understand that, that that kind of power is necessary. But the other thing that is really unique about us, I think, is that we acknowledge that war is a system. And it is not just one thing, it's a whole lot of things. And we also recognize that if you take those things away, uh, it, we're, we're going to have chaos. We have to have some other system to replace the one that's based on violence. And so World Beyond War, in our book that you mentioned, it lays out the blueprint, the groundwork for another system which relies on international law and diplomacy and mediation uh, to replace the one that's based on violence and the threat of violence. And, and so I, I don't see any other organizations doing that to, to come up with an answer. Uh, and, and so that's why I, I hope people will, will join us and, and participate and, and give us their, their thoughts on how, how, uh, how they think of war. And a, a couple of months ago, we had a webinar uh, about uh, war from three different perspectives, from, from a country that has no military, uh, that doesn't go to war, it has no enemies, like, like Costa Rica or Ireland is the example we use. Um, a, a representative of the United States <coughs> thinks of the war, wars as, uh, as a norm, a norm that we're always at war, we don't even realize we're at war, and we're, and we're, and we're we uh, are, I guess, comfortable with spending half of our tax dollars uh, on war. And the perspective of somebody who lives in war, somebody who lives in Afghanistan and, and is afraid every day of their lives. So we had this webinar, and, and it was really fascinating to compare these three perspectives. So we have to... We, we have to share all this. We can't just attack the problem from one point of view. And that's why it's so important to have an international movement to, to abolish war. I'm going to ask 
David Hortso to say the final words. But before then, I just want to say um, one thing we haven't talked about at all is that World Beyond War does annual conferences, or we, we have in the past. The way I became involved is um, just by chance I saw a, I believe it was a Facebook ad for the conference that we had in 2017 in, um, in Washington, D.C. I have that right, right? 2017? Yeah, it was mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. I went without knowing anybody. I found it so welcoming um, and, and so inspiring. I'm so glad I went to that conference. I guess my, my life has changed because now I'm part of World Beyond War and it has meant a lot to me. So that's one of many ways we can get involved. And um, before, before I ask David Hartso to, to you know, come up with some closing thoughts here, <laughs> I just wanna thank everybody who's involved with World Beyond War. As you said, Leah, 75,000 people have signed it. Is that right? About, um, yeah. And um, there are many different ways we can count our level of activity, but we are highly active. We, those of us on the coordinating committee are constantly talking and debating on, via email or monthly meetings. Um, so I just hope that people will, who hear this will feel inspired to get involved. We, we are open to more. Um, we, we want more involvement and everybody is invited. So with, with that said, um, David, what, what, David Hartso, what, what can, what would you, how would you describe what it is that you helped create five years ago, what it is today, and also the peace movement as a whole? Um, how, how would you characterize it? <clears throat> oh, well, um, I, I agree with everything that David and Leah <laughs> just said in terms of uh, what's already being done and uh, also uh, what still needs to be done. I guess I would just add, um, I think that the video that David Swanson produced uh, back at the very beginning, uh, I think we called it the $2 trillion question, uh, which is also on our website, where we, uh, we, we looked at what is that $2 trillion going for now and what it could go for <laughs> if we put it into positive things, healthcare and housing and uh, and a decent life for every person on the planet. If I still believe that if we could put out that vision to people all over the world and see that that's our choice, um, they would come flocking, <laughs> especially when they see that war is not working. I mean, you know, the last however many, 60, 70 years, it seems war hasn't worked anywhere. Uh, it's, uh, it's gotten us deeper and deeper in the hole. It's creating more and more enemies. And so the trillions of dollars that we have spent, uh, especially since 9-11, <laughs> You yeah. know, we, we are digging ourselves deeper and deeper in a hole, less and less security, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead, uh, millions of people having to flee their homes. And uh, so obviously what we're doing is not working. And, and at the same time, we have uh, these tremendous human needs and the, uh, the need for the billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars to make the transition to a renewable energy society and world so we don't have to fight oil wars etc uh, and i guess i uh, we mentioned the the danger of um uh from global warming
but I mean, Dan Ellsberg in his newest book, The Doomsday Machine, <laughs> points out that if we have a nuclear war today, um, uh, you know, billions of people will die, you know, from from the immediately. But within a couple of years, we're going to have nuclear winter, and almost all life on this planet, people are going to starve to death. Yes. So uh, more than 6 billion people will die. And the question is, is anything in the world worth putting an end to human life on our planet? Hmm. Uh, anything at all. And I think if people really look at that, one is the vision of, of what we could do with that money. But second, we're gambling with the future of life on our planet. And is that something we really want to do? And when we, as we have said, when we look at the, there are alternative ways to get security <laughs> that work. Um, so this is a no-brainer. Um, and we've talked about, you know, how media, <laughs> mainstream media is very much a part of the problem and our education system, et cetera, that buys into this security you get through uh, wars and, and, and threats of wars. Um, so, uh, I, I think a, a, a challenge for us as we look to the future is how do we help those 75,000 people who have signed this declaration of peace, um, feel in, inspired and empowered to become organizers in their own communities and countries, um, to, to, um, find thousands, millions more, <laughs> they're going to yeah. say, yes, uh, this is a, a, a global movement uh, that governments will have to, I mean, Eisenhower at one point said, I'd like to uh, believe that the people of the world want peace so much that governments will have to get out of the way and let them have it. Wow. Well, <laughs> I agree with Eisenhower on that yeah. one. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's not going to happen just by our saying we want peace. Uh, we're going to have to get out there and um, the same way that happened in the civil rights movement in this country, the same way that the people of the Philippines overthrew their dictator. Uh, mm. <laughs> that was, I mean, it, and it's in this country, it's, it's so obvious that our government is working on behalf of the wealthy and the corporations, the military industrial complex. And it's about time that we have a government really of, by, and for all the people. And it's listening to the people who want peace, uh, not uh, endless wars and uh, killing and dying by the hundreds of thousands, millions, if not billions. Yep. Well, um, thank you. That is surely a powerful message. And, um, and maybe, we, maybe we should close it there. We're well over our hour, but we can... Um... I think we can leave this all in because it's all important. So uh, uh, unless anybody um, has any final thoughts, maybe we should leave it there. And I would just say to everybody who's hearing this, um, go to our website, come to our events, come to our rallies. We're doing a event um, on April 4th in Washington, DC, No to NATO, Yes to Peace. Um, and you can find out about all of it on our website. That's, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram. Anything I'm forgetting um, in terms of how to reach us, David, Leah, 
Um, um, I would just like to point out that they can um, uh, they can order our book uh, through bookstores, or they can buy it online, or they can download it for a what is it two dollars, David? We're we're asking for the download. Um, anyway, it's available, and the study guide for it, which is is fantastic. Um, is available for free online, and uh, it's a great idea. Maybe in your community, you want to get two or three people together and, and have a study group. Uh, that would be a great way to get involved and understand what World Beyond War is is trying to do. Yep, and you know, I think all three of us, all, all three of you, have said at one point that it it does feel good to to work for something you believe in, and um, we all believe in this. So anybody who's listening. Um, get get a piece of that good feeling for yourself by by getting involved um, and as, especially as we said we're international and no matter where you are um, we want you we want you to be part of this so um, I think we can we can cut it there thank you so much to the three of you David David and Leah this has been really great thank um, you thank you thank you Mark. Hi, this is Mark Elliott Stein, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the first podcast episode from World Beyond War. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast subscription service, and also give us a good rating, and we're looking forward to episode two.